Welcome to the Just Ingredients Podcast. I'm Cara Lynn, and here we talk all things nourishing to the mind, body, and soul. This is a place where you can find just good ingredients to life. Did you know 70 to 80% of your immune system resides in your gut lining? Yeah, you heard that right, 70 to 80%. And because of that, what I'm about to share with you is the most important addition to your health ritual. ION, short for Intelligence of Nature, goes beyond probiotics to strengthen your gut lining and balance your microbiome the natural way. This soil-derived supplement is scientifically proven to reinforce your first line of defense, keeping harmful toxins out of your bloodstream and protecting your immune system so that it can function at peak performance. Maintain a healthy immune system so that it can protect you when you need it the most. Don't just supplement, support digestion, immune function, mental clarity, and more with Ion Gut Skin and Sinus Support. Try Ion worry-free for a 60-day money-back guarantee and free shipping. Learn more at intelligenceofnature.com. Again, that's intelligenceofnature.com. Zach Bush, MD, is a physician specializing in internal medicine, endocrinology, and hospice care. He is an internationally recognized educator and thought leader on the microbiome as it relates to health, disease, and food systems. Zach Bush, MD, founded Seraphic Group and the nonprofit Farmers Footprint to develop root cause solutions for human and ecological health. His passion for education reaches across many disciplines, including topics such as the role of soil and water ecosystems in human genomics, immunity, and gut-brain health. His education has highlighted the need for a radical departure from chemical farming and pharmacy, and his ongoing efforts are providing a path for consumers, farmers, and mega industries to work together for a healthy future for people and the planet. Welcome to the show, Dr. Zach Bush. It is an honor to have you here today. I have read your stuff, followed you on social media, just learned from you for years, and it is such an honor to have you here today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on, Carlin. So I'm excited to talk to you about uh, farming, regenerative agriculture, our microbiome, things like that. But before we begin, why don't you just tell my listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, and what you're currently studying? Sure. My background uh, professionally was, um, well, relevant to now at least, it was, it was began in medicine. I was uh, going into engineering, is I guess relevant to the journey, but uh, took a year off, went to the Philippines, and got to work with a group of international midwives there birthing babies, and that was a real huge wake-up call to my life just fascination with medicine in general and fascination with the human body at that point, incredible reverence for women and the birthing process and watching women take care of women in that midwifery space was an incredible opportunity to really see the beauty of the ancestral wisdom that lies within all of us and is carried forward, I think, by the women in our world. And that was an inspiration to me such that I changed from engineering into pre-med. I was actually a Spanish major with that pre-med and then uh, went to the University of Colorado uh, Health Sciences Center for my medical doctorate. And after that, went to the University of Virginia in Charlottesville for my postdoctoral work and uh, did a specialization in internal medicine initially and then went into endocrinology and metabolism as a second subspecialty did a chief resident teaching year in there 
and um, also uh, moved into biomedical research in the area of metabolism, which is how our bodies use food and energy to produce uh, the vitality within our bodies for perpetual healing that is necessary for life to occur. We have so many injuries that accumulate in a day. It's necessary for a constant healing process to be present for us to have this regenerative health that would allow for longevity and kind of this thrive state that we would associate with our concept of health. And so that took me ultimately into cancer research and understanding the collapse of metabolism through the kind of poisoning of the mitochondria, which are the bacteria that live inside of our cells. We have about 200 to 2000 of these little tiny bacterioids that live inside of our cells and they break down the carbon-based energy in the form of carbohydrates or fatty acids into light energy again they liberate the, the light energy that was stored in those carbon molecules from the sun through photosynthesis and the com combination of carbon dioxide co2 in the atmosphere into these long chain carbons of carbohydrates and fatty acids through another bacterioid that lives in the plants uh, we call them plastids instead of mitochondria but they're basically the same structure the famous one is chlorophyll and the green leaf of the plant and that takes the carbon dioxide and turns it into those long carbon chains that function as a battery to carry energy to us. And so I was studying the effects of, you know, toxins in our environment and uh, the toxins that we might add to chemotherapy to help kill cancer cells via these mitochondria. And in that journey, I came to appreciate in a completely new way, the concept of nutrition and started to realize that uh, I was going down the wrong path if I was ever wanting to be a part of the solution for human health, because ultimately chemotherapy and our philosophy of poisoning cells is a symptom management approach. And the cancer is a long, long way down the path towards dysfunction before it occurs. Uh, current estimates, it takes 17 to 25 years for a single cancer cell to develop in the human body. So we have this long lead time that I realized, man, if we give good nutrients to the plant and to the cell at the front end, or even during chemotherapy, instead of trying to poison the cell, we can actually induce a, a soft you know, process of apoptosis, which is kind of programmed cell suicide where the, the cell just involutes and dissolves, calls in the stem cell to replace it with a healthy new cell, rather than trying to like poison it uh, with a chemotherapeutic agent. So that was kind of how my research evolved into nutrition and around that time started to realize that all disease was the same thing. There was no such thing as like, oh, there's cancer specialists and heart disease specialists and endocrinologists who are doing diabetes specialties and all this. I started to realize we're, we're all chasing the wind here, chasing symptoms in different organ systems that are all due to the same root cause, which is a poisoning of the body, a lack of nutrition, ultimately nutrient density, light energy within that body. And so we have failing energetics at the cellular level, and therefore we manifest diseases in all kinds of different patterns based on our specific stressors. But the cause is ultimately this chronic inflammation, chronic dysfunction, chronic loss of communication at the cellular level. So that was my journey into this whole issue that brings me onto your podcast, which is food and nutrition. And how do we start to really look at the human body with a sense of opportunity rather than a long list of diseases and medications. Wow. I love all of that. I could ask you a ton of questions just from what you just said, but like you said, I want to talk about nutrition and I want to start at the very basics with the farming. And so has farming changed over the years to affect the nutrition? 
It has, yeah. And th this was, again, my origin story. I didn't know that setting out. Uh, doctors are not taught anything about nutrition. We have one little course in our first year of medical school called Nutrition. But it's really just to kind of memorize the you know, food pyramid and have some vague understanding of carbohydrates and protein and, and fats. Um, but you ask any doctor, you know, you know, what is protein? And they're likely to tell you it's a fuel, you know, an important fuel for the body. Protein is not a fuel. Protein doesn't function as a fuel. It can't be broken down in energy in the body. It has to be converted to glucose or sugar in the liver and then passed on to the cells to be, be fuel. So here we are, you know, loading all of our athletes and bodybuilders with protein, thinking we're doing something to build muscle. In fact, we're stressing the liver and causing a lot of chronic inflammation in these athletes and, and the like through this overdose of protein. So we're just very topsy-turvy in our understanding of nutrition due to the lack of education and due to that education being largely chemical-based. We're, we're really pharmaceutical technicians as physicians in this country rather than, you know, holistic health people. So, so it was a long haul for me to start to learn what your question really gets at is, does the food matter and does the food change to help usher in this advent of chronic disease that we saw explode in the late 1990s and especially accelerate through the early 2000s. And now we're seeing the ramifications of it with massive epidemics and cancer, autoimmune disease, chronic fatigue, chronic pain syndromes, allergies to everything, the whole phenomenon of celiac disease and gluten sensitivity, all that. None of this existed when I went through medical school in the early 90s. So it was a real big debut of disease that happened in these last couple of decades most of which had never been witnessed on any sort of scale of you know, population health. And when I was going through medical school, the number one complaint in a primary care office was low back pain and had been for 50 years. And suddenly, you know, come 1996, suddenly chronic fatigue and chronic pain syndromes became the primary complaint of individuals going into their primary care office. And that was new, never did it happen before. So what, what is that indicative of? It's indicative of that food chain and that farming system change that you indicate with your question that happened in around 1996 and in that it really began in 92 and then took off in 96 but in 92 we started spraying wheat with herbicide a wheat killer called glyphosate which was made famous by the product roundup and we started spraying wheat globally um, you know and started actually in northern europe and then spread quickly within a year all over the world especially in northern climates where there's a short growing season the Roundup was being sprayed directly on wheat to kill it quickly right at the end of the season to make sure it could be harvested before the first snow. You have to have the wheat dry for it to be harvested without getting mold and everything else. And if there was threat of weather coming in, the farmer could spray it hard with Roundup and then harvest it within two days and it would be dry and dead. And so that quick turnaround at the end of the season allowed northern farmers to you know, desiccate or dry their crops quickly and pretty soon southern farmers and farmers with longer growing seasons realized they could abort wheat uh, early and get two growing seasons out of every summer you know so that there was this encroachment of it and every year since 1992 we've seen this acceleration of the use of of roundup as a desiccant or drying agent across our crops and now it's far beyond wheat but it's telling that wheat is our first sign of a problem in that we saw this you know, explosion of gluten sensitivity and celiac disease happen in the 1990s, which had really never been recognized as a problem. We've had wheat as a staple in the human diet for thousands of years. So we poisoned the wheat with this toxin 
days before harvest, you know, allowing really high residues of this to occur, uh, that would end up in the human gut. And so our laboratory has been an expert in the last 10 years of understanding how does Roundup actually injure the human body directly. And it turns out it does that by creating leaky gut. That inherent leak is caused by two big injuries from Roundup. Number one, it functions as an antibiotic in the soil system, but also in your gut. So when you eat wheat or other foods that are contaminated with Roundup, you end up with this high antibiotic exposure and you get a dieback of your gut flora. When you lose gut microbiome, you lose the, the regenerative repair rate of the human cells around it. And you start to get this fundamental leak across the gut membrane and your immune system gets overwhelmed by whatever you're eating, whatever you're breathing. And so this consumption or this kind of overburden to the immune system or exposure through the environment is what we're really recognizing as kind of ground zero for the population chain and you know, health changes and disease processes that kicked in in the 90s. By 1996, the farming changed again to the, the capacity for genetic modification of our corn, and then subsequently many others. It was actually first in squash, but uh, within a year of that, corn, soybean, you know, all the rest that have happened. We now have 30 crops that are genetically modified to be able to be Roundup ready. And so they didn't used to be called a GMO crops. They were called Roundup ready crops, and they were sold to farmers as a really convenient way to farm larger swaths of land because they could spray all of the crop with a weed killer preventing any weed development over the course of the season and the corn could continue to grow in the face of this horrible you know chemical that would have in days before killed the corn and so now you can spray the corn because it's been genetically modified to accelerate the breakdown of roundup at its root system and so it survives better and so that uh, survival rate in the corn led to an accumulation of glyphosate within our food system, within our soil system, and unfortunately in our water system, such that if you accelerate to today with where the vast majority of crops grown globally are grown under Roundup Ready, you know, genetically modified crops, and unfortunately it goes far beyond that. We can talk more about the GMO setting later, but we've genetically modified our food to be sprayed with more and more toxin over time. And with that, we are now carrying in our food and in our water systems, river systems, and unfortunately, even in our air that we breathe in the rain, these glyphosate you know, molecules of Roundup. And so the glyphosate is now present in about 75% of the air samples taken in the United States, 75% or up to 85% of the rainfall now in our country. And so we're being you know, drenched literally in this chemical that functions as a potent antibiotic and breaks down the boundaries of our skin, of our gut, of our blood-brain barrier, of our kidney tubules. So we've turned into a leaky sieve of biology across the population over these short decades. And that's allowed us to manifest this disease epidemic. Wow. You know what is incredible to me is that I'll ask some of my followers and listeners like, do you know what glyphosate is? And there's still a lot of people out there that don't know what it is. And when I say, do you know that it's in our food? People will say, no way, that can't be like, how is that? So it's mind blowing to me that it's such an issue, but yet a lot of people still don't know what it is. Yeah, it's more mind blowing that your doctors don't know what it is. It's more mind blowing that the scientists that regulate these chemicals don't know what it is. So I've testified, you know, a few times in front of the EPA now, and the EPA regulators don't understand the molecule. They don't understand the harms of it. Um, we've presented over 180 peer-reviewed scientific controlled studies showing its damage both generationally as well as to the individual. 
and the EPA continues to approve the, the use of these compounds. And so there's a real unawareness that is really occurs at every single level of the you know, food system at this point as to the really massive detrimental harm that these chemicals are causing to humanity and to the planet as a whole. And I, I would say that we're now looking at you know, the sixth grade extinction due to the loss of topsoil and gut microbiome in animals, humans, and beyond. So uh, we really have created the crisis of our species history uh, through this chemical farming. Wow, it just shows the importance of being an educated consumer and knowing what you're buying. But let's talk about the gut microbiome for just a second since you touched upon that. Maybe just start at the basics and explain to the listeners what the gut microbiome is, but what its role in our body is as well. The gut microbiome is a description of an ecosystem that uh, lives within you and around you. And so the gut microbiome is an extension of your sinus microbiome, your upper airway microbiome, the air you breathe, the, the soil that you eat from, the food that you consume. So if you can just picture like this vast ecosystem, picture a rainforest perhaps with thousands and thousands of species of animals and all this in the rainforest, that's echoed at the micro level in us with tens of thousands of species of bacteria within the, the human system. There's hundreds of thousands of species of parasites and protozoa and the like in and around our experience. There's millions of species of fungi that we interact with in our environment. And so bacteria, protozoa, parasites, and fungi create this big thriving ecosystem that is remarkable for its capacity for adaptation and, and kind of biodiversification over time. So it gets richer and richer as time goes with the swapping of information. There's a sharing of genetic information across the microbiome that makes it more and more diverse with every passing year, decade, century, millennia, eon. And so that's how life has actually occurred on the planet is this incredible enrichment and sharing of genetic information. And the way in which that is shared is actually through viruses. And viruses are you know, now understood to be the genetic library, the genetic potential of the planet. And viruses are produced by bacteria, fungi, protozoa, you know, multicellular plants, multicellular animals, humans. We are all producing viruses all the time. And viruses are not something that attack life. Viruses are a, simply a new variant of genetic information. And bodies of all species can take up this information and try to decide whether or not it's going to be you know, a gain of function for that species or not. As soon as a species does find gain of function, it tends to accelerate its desire to swap this information throughout the environment and will replicate that genetic opportunity to the world. So when we see a pandemic occur, whether that be a virus that spreads through crops or a virus that spreads through humans, we can be pretty sure that there's some sort of adaptive importance that is relevant to the stressors that we face that that virus is passing on to us because our bodies through their intelligence have chosen to replicate this, this process. There's tens of thousands of you know, processes that have to align to allow us to produce a virus. And so if I breathe in a coronavirus or the like, I'm going to only produce that at the cellular level if my environment in my body is saying, yes, I need this stimulus. I need the fever. I need a stimulus of regeneration within my body. I'm facing a stressor that my body is needing help to regenerate. 
And we do this through injury. And so the body can't, will lose bone mineral mass very quickly, for example, if it doesn't get fractured. And so when you do weight bearing exercise, you run up and down some stairs, you jump on a trampoline, that weight bearing exercise induces millions of tiny little fractures that then require a rebuilding process that makes the bone stronger than when the, before you jumped. Hmm. The same thing happens with your immune system. The dance between the microbiome, this vast ecosystem, bacteria, fungi, and the like, and your immune system is now understood to be the, the, the complete story of how life emerges. Our understanding of self, our understanding of how to cooperatively live within the context of the microbiome is a dance. It's a, a complete ecosystem landscape that it requires constant communication and constant cooperation at the cellular level to allow human life to occur. And so this whole concept of the human immune system isn't accurate. There is an immune system, but it's a description of this vast you know, communication network of microbes all around you. And as we kill the microbiome through antibiotics, whether they be herbicides or antibiotics from your physician, you go to the ICU to see the most extreme versions of this, we collapse the immune function by deleting the microbiome. And so the microbiome is your soil system. It is literally the way in which nutrients and vitality are given to your body. And it's also the way in which you become a self recognized resilient organism within the context of this vast complexity and biodiversity of, of the life within you and around you. Oh, I love that you say the microbiome is our soil system because that is easy to understand it that way. So we need our soil to be rich and full of good bacteria, full of this, you know, everything you've talked about. So the glyphosate is destroying the good bacteria. Is that true? That's right. It functions as an antibiotic, an antiparasite, antiprotozoa. It's been patented as an antibiotic, as an antifungal, et cetera. Uh, so it kills these organisms in the soil, but it also kills them within our sinuses when we breathe it. It kills the microbes on our skin when we shower in it. It kills our, our gut microflora when we swallow it and ingest it through our food system. And so we are becoming more and more isolated if you will, as a species, we're losing our connection to the soil systems of life, both through our food system, as well as our personal experience in our own microbiome. And so if you imagine your tomato plant growing out back, if you put that in just dead dirt that has very little organic material, no earthworms, no bacteria, the tomato plant's never going to grow. It can't fruit, it doesn't have nutrients, it can't thrive. And so you've learned to add fertilizers and compost and all this stuff to your garden so that it can thrive. Your gut is the same way as your soil. If you're not actively taking care of that soil, it is being depleted by the environment you're now living in. And unfortunately, you and I can't look back to our childhood and be like, well, we ran around and just ate peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and we were fine. That's not a relevant connection in your brain because the peanut butter and jelly sandwich you were eating didn't have wheat that was grown under glyphosate, didn't have peanuts that were contaminated with all kinds of 2,4-D and nicotinamides and all these pesticides and herbicides that end up in the legumes. Uh, the legumes, things like chickpeas, for example, hummus, you know, used to be you know a staple in almost every you know culture of the Middle East and other countries around the world. And now legumes are among the highest, you know, desiccant use uh, Roundup in the world. And so we're spraying all the chickpeas and soybeans and all these things with Roundup all the time. And those legumes are becoming toxin carriers. 
And I think that it's sad that physicians are, and scientists are running around telling people that the food is their problem instead of identifying the chemicals as their problem. One of my colleagues is running around telling everybody that lectins in legumes is killing everybody. And it drives me crazy because like, no, lectins have literally been among the most important stimuluses to a healthy body through all of time. All of the blue zones around the world relied at, on legumes as one of their primary nutrient sources to induce the longevity of, you know, live over a hundred years in the blue zones. Uh, and so that, that health is vital to it. And so when we start damning wheat and say, well, you just have to eliminate all the wheat from your diet, we've ignored the fact that, no, you just need to go and eat, you know, heirloom grains grown in, in non-chemical environments and you're not gonna have a wheat sensitivity. And you get to see that. Uh, when you have people with severe gluten sensitivity, all this, and they go over to Europe and they have a croissant in the streets of Paris and they're like, what the heck? No brain fog, no bloating. How come I can have, then they think, well, maybe I'm cured. And then they come back to the States a week later, they eat one piece of bread and they're gone for a week, you know? And so it's like, we have evidence second to second that the food environment that we're living in is the problem. It's not the, the food nutrients. It's not the the food ingredients in your food necessarily is the chemical ingredients that have been sneaking into your food that are really causing the big damage. And so we've got to come to terms with the fact that we have to mandate, you know, testing and labeling of our food system. Again, there's no responsibility at this point for farmers to grow ingredients that don't harm us. The government's not paying attention. The government continues to you know, write them a blank check as to how much they can use in these environments. Nobody's testing glyphosate residues on foods coming in into the U.S. Other places they are: Japan, Russia, you know, Germany. These countries are become, have become litigious about where they're getting their food imported from and making sure there's no chemical residues detectable in those foods. Germany has refused to take any grains from the United States and Canada. No North American products allowed, really, you know, from our commodities growing environments in the United States into Germany. They get all of their grains imported from the Ukraine and Russia, where they have very high quality, you know, organically grown produce still. And so Germany is recognizing as a nation that their public health and the cost of maintaining public health is directly related to their importation of American, you know, food system. And we're seeing that globally now. If, you know, if you take American food grains, you're going to have obesity, diabetes, chronic pain, chronic fatigue, you're going to get all of it, everything we have. And the children, it will look like food allergies, eczema, uh, the food sensitivities, environmental sensitivities like pollen and dust and everything else in the household. It'll look like asthma. It'll look like attention deficit disorder. It'll look like uh, you know autism spectrum disorder. All of these things are the result of severe leak across our systems of the blood-brain barrier, kidney tubules, vascular system, and ultimately the gut. And so we are leaking as a population due to this chemical contamination of our food system. And we are now exporting that to the world. We're exporting our, our genetically modified crops so that farmers globally are being forced to start to grow these through economic pressures and incentives and stuff like this. And so Brazil is now the number one user of glyphosate containing chemicals and, and genetically modified crops globally. And so uh, we've exported this behavior and this poisoning of the food system to the developing world now. There's a huge push right now by the chemical companies to get India to adopt our practices. China already did. China actually produces the vast majority of glyphosate on the planet. And so uh, 
our countries are one at a time being drenched in these chemicals and the public health consequences follow within just months to, to a few years after adoption of these practices. I think Africa is our, our one last hope. Africa is the only place that we have a improvement in fertility, human fertility is still measurable. Everywhere else in the Western world and now in the developing world adopting these chemicals, we're losing human fertility. Uh, we are going to go into a negative you know, growth pattern. We already are in a negative growth pattern in the U.S. and other places uh, globally. And we're going to see that contraction of population across the developed world. We've had 50% drop in sperm counts and all of this. Uh, more than 50%. We're now approaching 62% or something like that drop in sperm counts across Western civilization. So we are seeing this break of human existence, really, life on Earth, as we continue to contaminate our, our food and water systems. It is so frustrating, especially that the U.S. will do nothing about it. And it's frustrating that more people aren't aware of these toxins. So it sort of is could be overwhelming to the listeners like, oh, great, then what do I buy? Is there a certain label to look for to avoid some of this glyphosate? Yeah, it's a very difficult scene in a grocery store right now to make any heads or tails of it. One of the best websites out there right now to help you as a consumer is uh, the Environmental Working Group out of Washington, D.C. They've been screening food for a decade now uh, for chemical residues, and they publish the Clean 15 and the Dirty Dozen on their website. So if you Google Clean 15, Dirty Dozen, the, the EWG, Environmental Working Group, will pop up. Uh, and that website shows you what are the 15 food crops that are clean, even under conventional growth, so you don't necessarily have to buy them organic. And then what are the dirty dozen? What are the top, you know, most contaminated ones on the market? And number one is always strawberries. Strawberries are horrifically sprayed. They're sprayed right up until the moment they're harvested. Um, and so strawberries, if, you, if you're not really growing your own strawberry, probably just skip it. But you, at the very least, you have to get them organic. But even organic have residue at this point because the strawberry environments are so heavily sprayed. And so even if you're a field or a couple fields away from conventional growing and you're trying to grow organic strawberries, the amount of glyphosate and Roundup in the water table that you're irrigating your, your crops with still has residues adequate to, to end up in the food. So very, very difficult to get a clean strawberry in the planet unless you're growing it in your own backyard, in which case you're getting it as clean as possible, acknowledging that there is you know, trace amounts that are still in the rainwater and everything else, but you're going to get as clean as possible in your backyard. So the dirty dozen are really the ones that you either want to eliminate from the diet, especially for your children, or, you know, get them from your backyard or organic slash, you know, biodynamic or permaculture or regenerative, you know, supply nearby. But right now, regenerative, you know, agriculture, which is something we should probably go into deeper, but regenerate only accounts for 0.01% of the farmland. So, yeah, it's like not available in, in mass. And so the clean 15 dirty dozen can be that initial guide for you and your family to say, wow, these are the, the, the food behaviors we really need to change in the home to reduce the amount of you know toxins and pesticides or besides that are ending up in our food system. Okay. Let's actually talk about regenerative agriculture because Sometimes people mix that up with organic, but they're two completely different things, correct? Yeah, that is correct. Yeah, I actually, you know, got deep into this in 2017 when I had already been preaching on glyphosate for years and our lab had already shown much damage. And I, I was going around preaching the importance of organic you know, agriculture and organic 
production and we went to film a documentary that I wanted to produce to show the world the damage of glyphosate and its impact on cancer prevalence throughout the United States and the like. As soon as we started that filming, we were up in a farm in the northern, you know, catchment area or the water catchment zone of the Mississippi River up in Minnesota. And that first farm we stopped on, we got to film a, a soil and health you know, advocacy program. And they were showing the differences in soil architecture and soil quality between conventionally grown to organically grown to uh, regeneratively grown foods. I had actually never heard of regenerative agriculture in 2017. It was a new concept for me. But I was devastated to watch that again and again, the soils testing under organic environments were no better and, and often worse than even in the conventional chemical grown environments. And that, I was dumbfounded that that was possible. I was like, what are we doing to the soils of organic food? And unfortunately, what we're doing is we're over disking or over plowing that soil instead of spraying a weed killer we disk that soil over and over again over the course of a year and by so doing we destroy root systems we destroy the the mycorrhizae the mycelium of the fungi and we lose that soil architecture very quickly we kill earthworms with the over disking we over dry the soil we create you know prevalence of drought intolerance and, and flooding and silting of the soil. We're losing topsoil like crazy globe, you know, across our country now. The average farm in the United States, both organic and you know, conventional, is losing about two tons of topsoil for every acre that we have under use. And so those 125 million, 150 million acres, you'd multiply that by two tons of topsoil. We're lo losing 11% of our gross domestic product and value uh, in you know, soil losses every year in this country. And so literally the foundation of, of the food system is the washing into our rivers and oceans through the death of the, the architecture of the soil. So regenerative agriculture steps in as the solution there. And so we changed our mindset from just tell everybody to eat organic to we started a nonprofit called Farmer's Footprint to start to raise awareness that organic's not enough. We've got to go beyond that and start taking care of soil architecture and soil biodiversity. And to do that, we need to start to understand the importance of biodiversity within soil systems, within cover crops and the like. And so in a nutshell, regenerative agriculture is a description of a change in philosophy for the farmer. Instead of being a strawberry farmer or a wheat farmer or whatever, these become farmers who are focused primarily on the quality and nutrient density within their soil systems. Mm. And when you change your mindset from crop grower to soil grower, it's a big, big shift of the mind, but it leads to this incredible opportunity for the farmer. Right now we're seeing about 8,000 farms go out of business every year in the United States. Now where the death of the, the family farm has been heavy upon us for over a decade now and it's accelerating. And largely that's because of a loss of uh, financial wellness to the farms. They're going bankrupt. They're losing their capacity to be multi-generational farms. So they're lo losing the succession planning to the younger generations because their younger generations are watching their parents go deeper and deeper into debt. The parents are literally saying, don't go into farming. It's not going to exist another 10 years because there's no money. We can't continue this. Our soil's dying costs more soil inputs every year. We're sort of paying more money for fertilizers that grows crappy you know, immune system plants. So we have to put in more herbicides and pesticides. And so there's this vicious cycle of inputs as you put a piece of land on, on ICU-like, you know, cost and, and ineffective, you know, management of intensive care unit kind of 
you know, intravenous therapy to the dirt that's dying, the plants that are failing in dying soils and the families are giving up. And so we have to reverse that. Unfortunately, regenerative agriculture has shown its ability to not only change radically the financial wellness of the farm, it changes the livelihood of the individual. We see farmers, you know, coming out of depression, uh, coming out of their suicidality. We have the highest suicide rates in, in farming history in the country right now. And so start to see farmers recover their own mental health when they, they start to feel their own independence and, and capacity to, to grow not just soil and, and nutrient-rich foods, but they're also starting to grow financial wealth for their families. And we see those families immediately shifting back towards you know, multi-generational opportunities. We see these young generations of farmers, especially young women coming back to the farm who are, are incredibly inventive. They're more entrepreneurial than their parents had been there. They have a sense of direct consumer capacity through internet and online sales, and they're reinvigorating the whole concept of the farm when they see the opportunity for you know, economic wellness. So uh, regeneration is not just soil management. I think it's really about human management. It's about growing human creativity. It's about growing human resilience again, as much as it is about resilient soils. And so we need to start you know, focusing our attention across all of the stakeholders of the food system, including you know, the massive, you know, largest corporation ever created in human history, which we call consumers. The consumers are this corporate body that behave in a very predictable fashion and can be manipulated heavily by advertising and the like. And as consumers, we've become the most destructive force on the planet. We are inducing the decision making of the chemical companies and the farmers to do what they're doing because we want really cheap subsidized food. And if that's what we keep asking for and that's what we keep signing for up for at the grocery store, we're going to, to cause the death of the planet. And so we can't sit here and point fingers at Bayer or Monsanto or all these chemical companies. We have to take a look at ourselves and our own you know, consumer behavior, first out of a sense of responsibility, perhaps, but second, as a huge opportunity, we've created this situation, we can change this situation. And so we need to get our mentality plugged back into the soil. As a mother, you are the last line of defense for the, the children that you want to produce, you know, that you have to protect those kids when the EPA is not protecting them, when the farmer doesn't know how to get back in line you're the one that has the opportunity to really fundamentally change it because as mothers, you guys control some 85% of household spending decisions. And, and therefore you are you know, controlling some you know, $15 trillion a year of gross domestic product. And so, man, you have a lot of money to spend. And at $15 trillion, just the U.S. mothers, you guys are ready to change the entire globe, not just you know, the U.S. Your behaviors are going to change our importation from China and from Europe and from Africa and South America, you can help radically change the way that we interact with our nature when you start to see yourself as part of that nature and not just a consumer of you know, downstream processed foods. Wow, that is a huge responsibility upon mothers. And so do you suggest that we start with voting with our dollars? What we pay for, we pay for the good stuff rather than the glyphosate filled stuff? It's a place to, it's one of the components for the beginning of the journey. But I also think, you know, what you're doing by listening to this podcast is important. Education is a critical first step because there's a lot of greenwashing that happens out there. Like product, you go to the, go vote with your dollar and the label looks good, but there's a lot of, you know, hidden, you know, uh, messaging in there that, that unfortunately doesn't necessarily 
translate to good for the planet. And so in the end, you know, what you really want to do is start to understand food systems again at the root of it. And I think the only way to do that is through human relationship. Instead of becoming an expert reading packages, you might want to start really becoming an expert in human relationships with food systems again. And, and that would be know your farmer and become a farmer. At that micro level, a backyard garden becomes your rooted system and understanding of what a tomato tastes like. Children today don't know how to eat vegetables and fruit because they've never seen it grown. They've never participated in it. A kid who grows a tomato plant will eat tomatoes. A kid who grows a mint plant will eat mint. It just happens. You can't prevent them from eating it because they are so intrigued and they are involved in the creative process with it. Uh, a kid who sprouts their own sprouts will eat the sprouts. And so you can immediately change the behavior of, and relationship of children to food by helping them become part of that agricultural experience, that farming gardening experience. And so your household has the opportunity, I think, to begin there because just voting with your dollar and trying to get you know, the fanciest food on the shelf isn't working. Like I said, organic is not changing soil. We've got to go jump over that to this regenerative environment. And unfortunately, very, very little of our food is being grown regeneratively. You'll, you'll hear quotes of like, well, we have, you know, 5 million acres under regenerative management in the United States, but the vast majority of that acreage is just grazing land for animals and it doesn't grow any crops. And so the, you go and get strawberries and your potatoes and everything else, they're, they're still conventionally grown or at best organically grown. So we haven't really moved the needle yet on food production under regenerative management. It's because there's a huge change in mindset. There's a change in, in resources that farmer is going to need. There's a change in behavior of the labor on the farm and a re-education at all of those levels. So we launched Farmers Footprint to not only you know, educate consumers, but also start to educate farmers and start to connect consumers back to farmers to help them make this leap towards soil management that we're desperately needing to, to regain health in this country. I love that you suggested growing your own food because it's so true. We grew um, a mint lime plant, just something different this year in our garden. And every single kid was like, oh, I want to taste it. I want to see what this tastes like, you know, so they will taste your food because they're just curious, like you said. But I am curious about this regenerative farming. Is there a label on foods out there saying that it's produced through regenerative farming or not yet? There are certifications that are out there, uh, Rodale Institute uh, along uh, with conjunction and funding from Patagonia have created a regenerative organic uh, certification, uh, ROC, and it's not regulated by the U.S. government as the USDA organic is. Uh, I see that as a good thing at the moment, like it is certainly starting to move us towards the right thing. The challenge of those is it actually doesn't have a way of actually showing you that the food is actually nutrient dense. It doesn't actually screen for toxins and all this stuff. So it basically says that farmers are starting to change their mindset on that land that you're buying from, but it's far from a complete model. There is a glyphosate residue free, I think it's GF glyphosate free certification that is, is available out of France and you know our dietary supplements and our company and a few others around the country are starting to use it Foods uh, are by and large not using it yet, but uh, will because it's almost impossible to find ingredients that aren't contaminated with glyphosate. So it's very hard to get glyphosate free uh, when you're using you know large amounts of you know, commodities crops in, as ingredients in your granola bar or your packaged chips or whatever you're making. 
Um, and so it's, you won't see much of the, of the glyphosate free label around outside of, you know, the highly controlled environments of dietary supplements and things like that. But I think we will see more and more right now. There's uh, 275, I think it was last count. I heard new certifications coming down the pike for farmers to certify their food as everything from kind of free range to regenerative to, you know, Regen Organic and all these labels and the farmers are fed up. The farmers are tired of the burden being on them to pay all this money to become certified when in fact they can't even sell their regenerative organic crops because there's no infrastructure for them to get that to market at the, the value added you know, price points that they would expect. And that's due to a lack of infrastructure as well as a lack of communication between the restaurant table or the consumer at the grocery store and that farmer. Uh, we've so centralized the food system and there's so many middlemen involved in the process of getting food to the table that you can't ask one farmer to change their methodology and expect them to succeed in that. You have to have a whole system of change in place. And so we've launched a big fund, uh, Biome Capital, uh, to try to start to rethink global macroeconomics around farming and food systems in this systems approach where you can't just invest in the soil, you gotta start investing in, in localized you know, storage and distribution transportation for those value added clean crops so that they're not just being stored in a big silo with the rest of the you know, corn in, in Oklahoma or wherever you're at. And so we need those systems in place, but we also need ag tech. We need new technology to allow farmers to track uh, residues in their systems we need to of chemicals we need farmers to be able to track you know which batch of, of produce is going where which batch of legumes or whatnot are ending up in what feedstock or whatnot uh, throughout the country so there's an opportunity for us to really recreate the whole food system from the bottom up now as we start to realize regen is our only way out of this crisis we've got to be soil centric in our entire food system. And to do that, we can we can quickly achieve that within the next eight years, 10 years, we could have a universal adoption of you know, these practices, but it's gonna take all the stakeholders being at the table. And uh, you know, we can't do the, the organic journey. We're 40 years into organic foods and still only 4% of you know, consumer foods are, are grown organically. We can't go at that snail's pace and expect to survive our extinction event is pending too fast now we've only got 80 to 100 years maybe left to to reinvent you know human life on the planet but estimates are now that we only have 60 harvests left on the planet under current management globally we are losing the the ability of our soils of the earth to make food and that's a crisis that just can't be metric it's it's the biggest existential threat we have it is the cause of, of the last great extinction 55 million years ago we saw 90 percent of life on earth disappear when an asteroid hit the planet and covered all of the topsoil in this layer of dust and choked out the the ability of soil to to thrive and and produce you know biodiverse life and so we saw this massive death of the planet where we are now that existential you know threat of the asteroid killing topsoils as consumers and as farmers, you know, responding to that consumer chemical behavior, we are in that journey. So we have to all come together as consumers, as farmers, as, you know, technology developers, as hardware developers, we need to all come together and say, all right, how do we do this as fast and efficiently as possible to achieve the goal of every acre of land on this planet needs to shift back into a co-creative 
experience with nature rather than an extractive process from her. Wow. Okay. I have two questions for you from that. So one, are topsoil destroyed because of all of these herbicides? Is that the main reason? That's definitely number one. And number two is disking. So even conventional organic, we, we overplow. And if you drive through the Midwest or Northern United States, especially in the fall, you're going to see miles and miles and miles of brown dirt just trodden up and it's clean. There's clean farming, you know, and so there's not a single weed for as far as you can see. There's no grasses growing. You have bare soil all winter long. That's a flipping disaster because that soil has no root system architecture. The fungi and mycelium are gone. So you have no way to keep that soil where it's supposed to be. And so all of the rain and snow that's going to accumulate over the winter then washes all that topsoil out of there and you lose incredible nutrient base and you have to start over again in the spring with more fertilizers and chemical inputs and all this to get the soil activated again. So the first step in regenerative agriculture is keep the soil covered. And and you do that with cover crops and you use multi-species cover crops for the best results where you have 15 to 30 species of cover crops mixed up and on every foot of land, you have 15 species. That's where you start to to really fundamentally change the microbial diversity, the soil quality, and you become immediately resilient within that one season of doing a cover crop, multi-species cover crop, you're going to be drought tolerant. You're going to be, you know, flood resistant. You're going to immediately create resiliency that you lacked just moments before. And so the speed at which nature recovers is mind-blowingly effective. And so this is really where I want to, you know, de-fear this podcast because it sounds like, you know, the end is already here. We, how are we possibly going to change everything? The reason we can change everything is because nature built that possibility into her fabric. She is a resilient mother and this earth is ready to, to rebirth humanity and a new resiliency within us if we will just stop destroying her. Oh, I love that. My second question that I wanted to ask you is, are farmers on board for this? Are farmers aware that the so- topsoil is terrible? Are farmers ready to do this? Or are farmers thinking, oh, this is a bunch of nonsense? Farmers are definitely aware of this problem. It's, it's their biggest you know, problem. It's why they're losing the farm. It's why they are so leveraged in debt. It's because every year they're spending more money on inputs into that dying soil process. And so farmers are distinctly aware of the crisis. What they don't know is opportunities that are at hand and how easy it is to make the shift, really. And so the, their change in mentality is one that's also you know, difficult to achieve because they are living in the same fear-based you know, state of scarcity that most of us believe in as, as consumers as well. And so they're, they're fearful to make the jump and, and understandably so, because not only are they taking a risk because uh, financially, unfortunately, you cannot actually get your crop insured if you are going to say, I'm suddenly growing regenerative organic. Well, the USDA is not going to give you crop insurance on that. Oh my goodness. That piece of land. And if the USDA won't give you crop insurance, then the bank's not going to loan you the money for your inputs that you'll then pay off at harvest. And so we've developed an economic regulatory environment that is incentivizing and if and not completely mandating farmers to keep doing conventional growth on the majority of their land because they need the crop insurance. Crop insurance is not an actually an insurance program. It's a, it's a subsidy program. And so they're getting paid to, to grow corn that we don't even need. In 2020, we I think it was, you know, it was hundreds of millions of pounds of corn were burned at the end of the season 
because we didn't have a place to sell it. And there was no market for it. We put as much of it possible into the ethanol industry as we could. We put as much of it into exports as we could. We put as much of it as we could into cow feed as we could. There was, and so we destroyed millions and millions of pounds of corn. In 2021, farmers in the United States grew more corn than they had in 2020. Oh my goodness. Because it was their best crop insurance, i.e. subsidy that they could get. And so the U.S. government is paying farmers to grow food that we don't ever eat, that we will burn. It got really bad in 2021. It got around even on Instagram and stuff like that. Social media was starting to record these events that farmers were getting letters that they would only be paid their subsidy if they destroyed the crop before it grew. And so they were being asked to mow down their crops with mowers before they even came to, to maturity. And so you, they would be given cash payments for every acre they mowed down of oh. corn, soybean, other things. And so, so you've got these farmers destroying crops mid-season for the first time in our history. And so we are at a level of insanity with our, you know, government perverted spending, you know, incentives and subsidies and weird behaviors that we're doing through that process. That's completely perverting the entire global economy of food systems. Because you can imagine we, if we can produce corn for free, basically, you know, the government's paying us more money to, to grow than it costs to sell it. And so we're, we're putting all of this, you know, ridiculously cheap grain on the market globally. It's putting farmers out of business all over the world. Uh, to try to combat this, other countries use tariffs. And so they use these trade and, and you know, tariffs or taxes uh, so that if a, a bushel of corn is being moved to Europe, it gets a tax thrown on it. So that it, you know, farmers in Europe can compete with that that price point. But when we signed NAFTA under Clinton, we destroyed agricultural economies throughout all of Mexico, Central America, and South America. North American Free Trade Agreement took away all those tariffs, and suddenly farmers all over that whole sector couldn't compete with all of this cheap grain on the market in the U.S., and they all went bankrupt. There was 50,000 farmer suicides in, in Mexico, Central America, and South America in just those first couple of years after Clinton signed that bill. We destroyed farming in, in the north and southern hemispheres of this side of the planet. And so it, we are really perverting not just soil, but also you know, economics through current regulatory and tax environments of the U.S. and the farm bill being really at the heart of that. Wow. So as you were talking throughout this whole podcast, at first I was like, okay, the soil is the root problem. Then you're talking and I'm like, okay, it's consumers that are the root problem. Then I'm thinking it's farmers that are the root problem. Now I'm like, it's the government that's the root problem. So there's multiple facets to this issue. We agree. We agree. So that Farmers Footprint and, and Project Biome, our, our big 501c3, we see the need for awareness, education, innovation, and policy to change simultaneously. And so we're, we're trying to bring stable stakeholders together across the whole gamut to do this. Um, I would welcome everybody to, to let your congressmen and women and your senators from your state, get them a, a phone call or a letter in the next couple of months and tell them they have to participate and be aware of what's going on at the White House Council on Food Nutrition Density that's happening in July. So our group and many others are trying to bring a new body of legislation forward, uh, new recommended legislation around changing our, our whole food farm bill and food incentives 
to look at the food density or nutrient density rather than you know bushels per acre of corn. I'm so glad you said that because a lot of times people are like, well, I don't know what to do. I'm just that one little person. But sending an email is something we can all do that is so easy. So thank you for sharing that. So as we wrap up, because I could talk to you about this for hours, I have so many questions for you about how it affects our health and how it affects the world and things like that. What can we leave the listeners with to give them hope for feeding their children, hope for a better soil, hope for better health? What advice can we give them? I'm pretty excited and optimistic about everything right now, because I believe as we come to terms with what we've done to the food system, what we've done through chemical agriculture, and therefore what we've done through chemical medicine, you know, the pharmaceuticalization of farming and physicians, we have poisoned ourselves. But we did that out of a single psychological break or a philosophical schism that we developed, which was we believed we were against nature. And if you look up nature in the Oxford English Dictionary, it says that nature is all living things on earth, landscapes, plants, etc., etc., as opposed to humans or anything humans have produced. And so in the definition of nature, we didn't only write ourselves out of, we put ourselves in opposition to all living things. That schism, I think, gets echoed across everything humans do. All of our technologies, all of our innovations, all of our sociopolitical systems, all have this belief that we are against nature. And this is, is inherently this scarcity mentality we have left behind the understanding of abundance that was in existence in all of our indigenous roots. The indigenous peoples all understood that nature was abundant and the planet was the source of wellness, was the source of nutrients and everything else. And so agriculture was a co-creative process with mother nature. And it was understood. I just was visiting the Oshawa tribe down in, in the rainforest of, of Ecuador last summer. And they've been practicing the same farming practices for 40,000 years in the same environment. And they thrive. One of the cool things about hanging out with them is in their kitchens, they have no refrigeration and no storage needs because they simply go out in the environment every day and they collect from nature what they need that day. Mm. And there's no need for this you know, sense of scarcity and this sense of stock and piling or anything else because they know nature is going to provide. And they know that nature is dynamic. And so every family has to have three different gardens in three different ecosystems within the rainforest. You know, some are highland, some are, you know, low by the water, some are in the deep forest. And that way, if there's a disruption in the ecology that year, they only lose one or two of the, the farms and they still have food independence. And so they've built this incredible, not only regenerative, you know, ancient gardening technique that, that we all used up until the last few decades, they also understand the importance of diversification of food sources and diversification of environmental resources in that context. And so these are the indigenous roots we all come from. We all come from some indigenous line that figured out how to be resilient and adaptive within food systems and beyond. And if we look at, you know, the real crisis that we have on the planet, it's hardly limited by food. We have massive socioeconomic crises globally. We have wars, famines, the whole thing going on all over the place. We need to come to terms with the fact that all of those are symptoms of this separation from nature. And so my excitement is that as you start to become a, a food you know, scientist in your home, as you start to become that food advocate, soil advocate in your own home, you're also going to have the opportunity to start to rethink everything in your life. How do you reconnect to nature in your children's education? 
how do you reconnect in, in the way in which you do transportation? And how do you reconnect to nature through the way in which you, you do entertainment? Can you unplug from Netflix, you know, but for once a month, you know, do your Netflix movie or whatever, but the rest of those, can you do them on the backyard porch, making music together again, as we always did on porches in, in the evenings uh, through all of human history? Can you dance by the fireside again? Can you start to think of, rethink the way that your days flow radically? It, it, it's critical. If we don't radically re-envision the future of humanity, we will disappear. And for me, that's not an acceptable outcome. We're too brilliant. We are, we are the highest expression of creativity that, that nature has ever produced on this planet. We are the highest you know, psycho-spiritual you know, entity that's ever existed on this planet, as far as we can tell least in recorded history. And so we need to, to embrace that opportunity as this incredible spark of life on the planet with the change of mentality where we write ourselves back into nature, understand ourselves to be co-creators instead of consumers, we're going to fundamentally change everything. And so while you are part of the consumer environment right now, and you can change the environment by your consumer behavior, how much cooler is it going to be when you become that co-creator? and become co-creative. What are you producing for your community? Are you producing anything for your community? And if you're a normal American, the answer is you're not. You're consuming with the rest of your community. And so you are sucking life out of the planet through a thousand different channels a day. Every Amazon order, every you know internet exchange, you are sucking the life out of the planet. And so how do we shift that to co-creative? It's as simple as finding your passions. Because your passion that you were born with and that your children are right now, you know, embracing as, as three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds, they weren't born to order Amazon. They weren't born to create chemical crops to be consumed. You and your children were born with a soul path, with a soul purpose, with a soul passion for joy and you know, resilience that had absolutely nothing to do with what your day-to-day -day looks like. And so what we're doing as a group, you know, as I've, you know, completely reinvented my clinic, because I realized there's no amount of disease management I can do to stop the tide. If we will die no matter what, I can be the world's best doctor. And if I'm just treating downstream symptoms of this whole collapse, I will have absolutely no positive impact on the outcome. We will still go extinct. And so I've changed my mentality as a practitioner to say, how can I co-create with my patients? instead of just be the stopgap to their disease process. And so we've created the journey of intrinsic health. The understanding that every single one of us has that soul within us, has this mission within us. And we're showing up right now at the tipping point of all things on great purpose. So what is your purpose? Why did you show up right now? I'm intrigued. I am very intrigued that you showed up right now. You and 7.9 billion other souls, which is more than we've ever had on the planet as a total in all of human history, we have more right now. And so we have more souls on the planet than has ever existed on, uh, in human history in our 200,000 years. And we've showed up on purpose to be at this change point where we rewrite ourselves into to consciousness, into, into nature itself. And in so doing, we're going to rebirth a completely different humanity. I hope we discover our humanity. And so there's this opportunity right now that is sitting here and the journey of intrinsic health as an eight week program is really reconnecting you and your family to this inner knowing, this deep connectedness within you that makes you part of the solution. Perhaps so the solutions we haven't even seen or imagined yet in our conscious minds, but they sit within you in the subconscious state and it's why you showed up. And it's why you are being called to be a mother right now. It's why you are being called to be 
you know, an arbiter of this consumer behavior machine and everything else, you showed up right now to change all of that and do it in beautiful ways. And you're here to manifest a new future for us. And so I recognize the beauty within each of you. I honor each of you because in this single podcast, I think you've seen the crisis moment and I hope you're feeling within you the spark of opportunity to change everything and become part of that fundamental cataclysmic metamorphosis of our own consciousness, of our own existence, so that we will not only survive the next 80 years, we'll come to thrive in a whole new way. Thank you so much. I absolutely love those thoughts. I encourage all you listeners to really ponder what he just said and try to find your purpose. That's where it begins. So thank you so much for um, explaining it like that. Will you just tell my listeners now where um, they can find you and where they can find more about Farmer's Footprint? Sure. My education platform is just uh, at my name, ZachBushMD.com, Z-A-C-H-P-U-S-H-M-D.com. There's a lot of free education there. There's the Global Health Education Summit that's happened. Uh, We have 30 hours of content there or something like that for you to consume now. It's on a lot of the back, you know, science behind what you've seen glimpses of in this podcast. That's all free. There's uh, access to health courses on Commune. Uh, which is a great educational pro- platform. Those courses are like $25 a piece through Commune. And then there's the, the big journey of intrinsic health, which is an eight-week program where you have uh, the one-on-one coaching or you can do group coaching at a cheaper price point for that uh, journey of intrinsic health.com uh, on that website. And then the nonprofit is farmersfootprint.us. Uh, in in the United States and North America. And then uh, for Australia, we just launched another sister nonprofit, uh, farmersfootprint.org.au for Australia there. Uh, So uh, join those missions. We we, uh, would thrive with your financial and community support to Farmers Footprint. Uh, We have a great Mighty Networks there uh, system there. So once you join Farmers Footprint and help us there, you can... uh, you know, join these weekly events that happen as you hear farmers getting together and reimagining the food system, but also reinventing culture. We have farmers that have started poetry groups and getting to know these farmers is one of the most miraculous things you'll do. You'll, you will rediscover yourself in, in amazing ways when you get to hear people that are at this intersection between soil, plants, and human future. Uh, these farmers know their role and they want to be the highest version of themselves and to get to witness that and be a part of that is a beautiful thing. On farmersfootprint.us, you'll see uh, over 100 different Meet the Farmer uh, experiences and different farmer stories. And those feature farmers that are likely in your region uh, throughout the United States. We also are starting to feature some overseas as well. Uh, But they're incredibly empowering stories of how farmers are creating these regenerative food systems and how you can be connected to that as uh, a household leader uh, that you are. So uh, those are some ways you can connect and would be honored for you to be part of that, that greater community. Thank you so much. And I encourage you listeners to go take advantage of all these resources. There is so much free information and ways that you can help and do your part. So go take a look at all of those different resources that he just uh, talked about. And then Dr. Zach, I end the podcast every time with asking my guests what they have found to be the best ingredient in life. What would you say that it is? It's you. You are the best ingredient in your life. Love that. You showed up right now and uh, you are are the most powerful expression of the divine. 
uh, within you is a, a soul that animates you and that is, I believe, as old as time itself, perhaps. And so when we think of uh, the divine, when we think of deities or nature or God, if we use this lexicon, that is within you. And that is the I am within you. And so when you find that I am, when you find that sense of purpose, you will cook a very lovely meal that we would call a life. And so you are the best ingredient in your life. Uh, you need to value yourself uh, at that level uh, because you are a precious miracle among us. And we're very grateful you showed up right now. No guest of mine has ever said that as the best ingredient. And you just won the award for my favorite ingredient. I am going to remember that always. I love that so much. Thank you, Dr. Bush, for being here today. I know you're an extremely busy person. And so for you to take the time to be here on my show is an honor. And I know that the listeners have learned so much from you today. So thank you so much. Blessings for all of you. Thanks for having me and Carlin. Did you know 70 to 80% of your immune system resides in your gut lining? Yeah, you heard that right, 70 to 80%. And because of that, what I'm about to share with you is the most important addition to your health ritual. ION, short for Intelligence of Nature, goes beyond probiotics to strengthen your gut lining and balance your microbiome the natural way. This soil-derived supplement is scientifically proven to reinforce your first line of defense, keeping harmful toxins out of your bloodstream and protecting your immune system so that it can function at peak performance. Maintain a healthy immune system so that it can protect you when you need it the most. Don't just supplement, support digestion, immune function, mental clarity, and more with Ion Gut Skin and Sinus Support. Try Ion worry-free for a 60-day money-back guarantee and free shipping. Learn more at intelligenceofnature.com. Again, that's intelligenceofnature.com. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to subscribe to the Just Ingredients podcast to learn more about your health and good ingredients to life. Plus, get daily tips at just.ingredients on Instagram.